Doyle Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Allison Colden, Maryland's fishery scientist, joins me. Welcome, Allison. Good morning. We've got a lot to cover. I want to touch on blue crabs. I want to touch on oysters. I want to touch on good news, but also news that may be concerning We, as we look forward. Certainly, I think anyone familiar with the Bay and CBF has heard that over the last several years, there's some very encouraging signs in terms of water quality, underwater grasses, uh, dead zones. With blue crabs, tremendous variability in the population anyway, but still there may be some signs that we should be listening to and watching. Yeah, exactly. So just this week, the Chesapeake Bay Stock Assessment Committee, which is part of the Chesapeake Bay program, released their annual stock assessment report and management recommendations for the blue crab. And those numbers come from the annual winter dredge survey, which happens in Maryland and Virginia, where they sample approximately 1,500 stations throughout the bay. And what we're seeing, similar to last year, is sort of a mixed bag. Um, Our female population, our adult females, is down this year. Adult males are also down. Uh, Overall, the population is down about 18%. Uh, The one bright spot that we saw in this year's survey is juveniles, which were down about 34%, or excuse me, 40% last year, are now up from that number by 34%. So it looks like the recruitment, the juveniles entering the bay, is starting to make a climb back up. Before we raise any huge red flags, we are still within um, what we call the target and threshold for the fishery, meaning that those numbers of adult females are still within the green zone of not being overfished or overfishing. But as you said, it's something we should definitely be keeping an eye on. It's interesting. And, uh, you know, I've heard from uh, some of the watermen that the balance between price for crabs which obviously goes down if there's a huge abundance. And the supply of crabs is actually sort of a sweet spot for watermen. They've been making some pretty good money because the price is still high and the availability is within boundaries. Right. We also had a pretty harsh winter for crabs this year. It was uh, had those cold snaps in the late winter Um, which affected the timing of the crabs coming out of the mud and coming out of their, uh, their, uh, state, their winter state. So it was a little bit slow getting started up this season and still is a bit slow in some spots. Uh, but as you said, that can help the price in some cases when the supply is lower than the demand. So one of the things you said, which I want to dive into a little bit, pardon the pun, (laughs) is the juveniles are doing better this year. I'm a hopeless optimist, as you know, and and we've certainly heard that bay grasses are at record levels, nowhere near where they need to be, but still at record levels over the last 30 years. Grasses are very important for juvenile crabs as a place to hide from predators. Can we hope that with the grass abundance and a good recruitment of juveniles that maybe they'll be able to reach adulthood? Well, as you mentioned, blue crabs are very variable in their populations, and that's because of their complex life history. 
Um, they spawn at the mouth of the bay, spend time out on the Atlantic Ocean, and then have to depend on the winds and the tides to carry them back into the bay. And it's that point when the bay grasses become very important. As you mentioned, they're a place for juvenile crabs to hide from predators, which often include other adult blue crabs. Um, and they also provide an important what we call foraging habitat. So they have a lot of little critters that live in and amongst the seagrasses that are good prey for juvenile crab species. So that helps them to grow faster, which also helps to prevent predation on the juvenile crabs. So um, we are extremely hopeful that the record growth that we're seeing in the blue crabs will certainly help all the juvenile crabs that do make it back into the bay from their Atlantic Ocean journey. Um, will help them grow and survive at a higher level and produce those spawning adults for the next generation. Hope springs eternal. Now, you, you know, I, and as most of our listeners probably know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I don't think I've ever seen the level of scientific sophistication in terms of fisheries management anywhere near where we are today. That's great news, whether you're talking crabs, oysters, striped bass, rockfish, and on and on down the, the line. Perhaps Menhaden are the one <laughs> that might be the exception, but we're not going to put ourselves in a really bad mood by talking Menhaden again today. But the, the level of fisheries management is really sophisticated. You mentioned the winter dredge survey for blue crabs. That has been uh, seen as, as pretty darn accurate over the years. Yes, yeah, so it's one of the more extensive uh, surveys that happens for Chesapeake Bay species. It's an annual fisheries-dependent survey, meaning that it's scientists going out and collecting the data, not relying solely on harvest data that comes from the fishery. And it's a cooperative survey, so it is large in its, its spatial extent. And it requires the cooperation of, of agencies and institutions, both within Maryland and Virginia. So having an annual survey that is conducted by multiple jurisdictions over the extent of the entire bay where this species is found is pretty darn impressive. Yeah. And um, the, the winter dredge survey and other methods that fisheries managers are, managers are using together in Maryland and Virginia Actually, last year, we saw an adjustment at the end of the season, didn't we, based on observations and uh, adjust, uh, an adjustment that was based on, on scientific data? That's right. So uh, the same report that we're, we're talking about today for this year is the one that managers used last year to make that late season adjustment. Like I mentioned, in 2017, we saw a 40% decline in the juveniles, which is was of concern to the managers. The juveniles that are sampled during the winter of 2017 are those that grow up to be available to the fishery in the fall. So that adjustment was made to protect a certain percentage of those juveniles so that they might be grow up to be the spawning adults that were sampled in this year's winter dredge survey. So the adult males and females that were counted this year were those from the juveniles last year, which is one reason why the drop in the number of adults this year was not an unsurprising result. And, you know, you just mentioned something. I just want to make sure our, our readers, our, our listeners, excuse me, catch this. The, the the bay blue crab fishery goes from larval stage to market size 
very quickly compared to most fisheries in the Chesapeake and elsewhere. It's, the blue crab is really in, incredibly well adapted to the Chesapeake Bay as a uh, commercial fishery, isn't it? Yes, and that's also why we see a lot of variability in their population size. So it really depends on how many of those juveniles make it into the bay in any particular year, how big the population will be for the next year, the next two years. I think that I think I'm right. The in a good year, 100 million pounds of blue crabs can be harvested out of the Chesapeake Bay. It's a it's a virtual crab growing factory. We're so lucky. I wouldn't uh, I, I I wouldn't let you go without talking a little bit about oysters because um, while we think blue crabs in the summer and oysters in the winter, the the oyster fishery has been showing us some uh, interesting data come up to a very high level first, looking at Virginia and Maryland. Wild recruitment in Virginia seems to be trending up. Yeah, wild recruitment in Virginia, fortunately, is a bit more consistent and strong than what we see in Maryland. And um, the management actions taken there to plant shell on the bottom have a tendency to produce the wild oysters that they need to support their fishery through natural recruitment. And in Maryland, uh, the uh, sanctuary strategy of putting certain areas of the bay into sanctuary status, not open to harvest, uh, has been somewhat controversial and somewhat under attack. But everything that I've heard is that it's extremely important to Maryland's fisheries management for the, for the oyster. Exactly. And, and we continue to see positive results out of the restoration partnership sanctuaries, those five tributaries in Maryland that are going to receive large scale restoration. We continue to see positive results from those and look forward to some new monitoring results very soon. So, so if the, the Annapolis State House is listening, we would urge that sanctuaries be maintained and not be diminished, much less turned over to active uh, uh, open oyster bars. You're nodding. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of a lot of discussion and you know I, I even heard at one point that someone said why would we waste those oysters out on the sanctuaries? They're just sitting there nobody's harvesting them and that's wasting them. Well in fact they're playing a tremendous role for future oyster populations. Exactly. Very good. There's also some um, good information, some good news uh, that CBF has been directly involved with in terms of oyster restoration in what, oh, even 10 or 15 years ago would have been considered highly polluted areas. In Virginia, the Lafayette River is now very close to being fully restored as an oyster location. Yeah, there's five acres remaining to be completed, which um, CBF's Virginia restoration team, along with the Elizabeth River Project, is planning to get done this summer in 2018. And, and I mean, I, I just can't tell you how surprising that is to a lot of people who remember the Lafayette as really, truly degraded, uh, an area that you really wouldn't even want to have any water contact with. And then Baltimore City, Baltimore Harbor, CBF started building a reef off of Fort Carroll, which as people in Maryland know is just outside the Key Bridge. We've been surprised, pleasantly surprised by the status of that reef. 
Yes, exactly. So with the support of the uh, Maryland Port Authority and with the Maryland Environmental Service, uh, we seeded a 1.1 acre reef that had granite substrate um, last April, April of 2017, with 3 million spat on shell oysters. Since that time, we've gone back to monitor that reef in December of 2017 and most recently just in May of this year. Um, I personally was out on those trips helping with the monitoring and was pleasantly surprised not only at the survival and growth of the oysters, but the development of the overall reef and the community of organisms that are living on it. It's really something remarkable. We sent a diver down. The photographs are on our website. They are dramatic for so many reasons, not only the health and uh, survivability of these oysters in Baltimore Harbor, but the clarity of the water impressed me as well. Yeah, we were really fortunate to have the water clarity, and obviously the oysters may have something to do with that right on the reef itself. So um, we were able to get some great photographs and also the samples that were brought up to the surface for us to look at. We counted 13 different species uh, on those oyster samples when we had them on board. So there's a thriving community of not just oysters, but also other organisms that call the reef their home, uh, making their way up to that reef in Baltimore. 13 different species of, uh, 13 species of other organisms on the oyster reef that were counted. Yes, things like mud crabs, barnacles, anemones, um, grass shrimp, um, all the types of things that we would expect to be making their, their home on a natural oyster reef. I'm a terrible fisherman, but I hear that the good fishermen all go to the oyster rock, the oyster reef, when they want to, that's, that's where you catch fish. Uh, are we seeing any natural recruitment on that, on that reef in Baltimore Harbor? Not yet, but we're, we're holding out hope. Um, some of the challenges to natural recruitment in the upper portions of the bay are obviously low salinity. Fortunately, there is in very close proximity, just on the other side of the fort, um, a long-standing oyster gardening reef, which has been planted by our CBF Baltimore program, along with other partners from the uh, Baltimore Great Baltimore Oyster Partnership, which includes Living Classrooms Foundation, Healthy Harbor Initiative, and others. Um, so there are a good number of what we would call broodstock, which is a population of adult oysters who would be able to reproduce if and when the conditions are right to do so. Well, it, it, you know, you're right mentioning our partners because there is a tremendous effort and the Port of Baltimore, we have to give credit where it's due, has been so helpful to try to build uh, an oyster population back in Baltimore Harbor. I mean, that, that's just the thing dreams are made of. That would be fabulous. Well, Allison Colden, uh, anything else on fisheries you'd like to say while I have you? Well, I think one thing I'd love to add about our Fort Carroll Reef in Baltimore Harbor is it shows that there is the possibility for there to be thriving oyster populations in the Upper Bay if we have the time, the resources, and the great partnerships to make restoration happen. So as you may know, there, there's another oyster bar in the Upper Bay, which is currently under threat. Um, Man of War Shoal, which is our last remaining 3D oyster bar in the Maryland portion of the bay. Um, some folks who are proponents of dredging that shoal argue that there are no oysters on it, so we might as well use the shell elsewhere. 
I think one of the positive impacts or one of the benefits of this project that we've done at Fort Carroll shows that if you have the resources to do restoration in the Upper Bay, you can get a thriving reef community. So that might be an opportunity that we have to make that relic oyster reef once again um, a, a thriving oyster bar. And you call it a 3D, the last remaining 3D oyster bar in Maryland. That would seem to be a good place to at least try to restore and and add value to it as opposed to tear it down and use those shells elsewhere. Especially because, and you mentioned this earlier, that uh, granite substrate is proving very uh, successful in terms of substrate for oysters to grow on. Exactly. Well, I mentioned that um, the reef that we planted at Fort Carroll had a granite substrate. So from my personal experience now, we're seeing that reef doing very well. But more importantly, granite has been used along with other substrates in the restoration tributaries in Maryland and in Virginia. In Harris Creek, which was the first restored area in Maryland, the scientists have come out with recent monitoring results showing that the granite reefs are producing four times the number of oysters that they see on other substrate reefs. And compared to areas where only spat on shell oysters were planted directly on the bottom, those granite reefs are doing 22 times better in terms of the number of oysters that are found on those reefs. Well, so, so that's great news. Um, we know that uh, oysters grow on oysters, and that's why you get vertical elevations from oyster reefs. But oysters uh, shell as a substrate for restoring oyster reefs has been in short supply. And this is great news that the granite, which is in you know, very good supply, can be just as effective, if not more effective. And the thing that the scientists who are doing monitoring are noting is the main source of those additional oysters on granite reefs versus other reefs is because the oysters are settling directly on the rocks themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're showing not only are they providing good substrate, meaning that they're elevating the oyster shell that's planted on top of them off the bottom, but they're also serving as a settlement area for oysters in and of themselves. Well, that's great news. And, and just to repeat on the Man of War Shoals, there's been a, a lot of support for maintaining Man of War Shoals, not dredging it from the sport fishing interest throughout the state of Maryland. Not only the sport fishermen, there's also support from um, watermen who actively utilize that bar and plant it with spat on shell for later harvest. But the sport fishermen obviously enjoy it. Like we said, it's the 3D oyster bar and fish love structure as we call it. So. Any habitat that is elevated off the bottom provides complex nooks and crannies, and in this particular case would provide lots of prey and food for those sport fish that people like to catch. It's a very important uh, fishing spot for those folks. Uh, so, Allison, um, just to wrap up, it, it, this Man of War Shoals issue, uh, if people are interested in seeing that this last remaining three-dimensional oyster reef in, in Maryland is maintained and preserved for utilization to, to, to build on, to restore, as opposed to having those shells dredged and taken elsewhere. What can our listeners do? Well, currently the permit to allow this to move forward is awaiting um, a hearing, I guess is the word, in front of the Maryland Board of Public Works. And what they can do is let the administration know that they support the maintenance of Manowar Shoal for the habitat that it provides. 
they can go to our website, www.cbf.org. And on our Man of War Shoals webpage, we are uh, have a letter that they can send to the Secretary of Natural Resources urging him to uh, maintain Man of War Shoals. And that's Man of War. Man of War, as it sounds. And the Board of Public Works is made up of the governor, the treasurer, and the comptroller of Maryland. And they'll be uh, reviewing this and voting on it later in the fall. Very good. Well, thank you, Allison. Uh, as always with Chesapeake Bay, there is a mixed bag. And if anyone tells you things are simple or straight line or definitive, tell them they're wrong because nothing is absolutely straightforward when it comes to managing big ecosystems, big environmental systems like the Chesapeake. So let me see, Allison, if I'm correct. Blue crabs in general have been better and have been worse, uh, but they're at a level that does not warrant any excessive or dramatic action uh, to cut harvest right now. It's being monitored and adjustments will be made. Fine tuning may be a good way of saying it, but overall we're relatively optimistic that the blue crabs are in a, in a place that, uh, that, that we feel is, is good. That's right. They're not currently overfished, and we may just be seeing some of the natural variability that comes from that complex life history that we talked about. Uh, and, and the good news is that we and others uh, in both Maryland and Virginia are watching this almost on a month-by-month -month basis using the best scientific monitoring and adjusting catch and other, other areas related to blue crab management as needed. That's right. So thanks very much, Allison. For Allison Colden, this is Will Baker. Keep up with our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay, every two weeks, and thank you.